Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 399. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to talk about our flagship event, FinTech Nexus USA, happening in New York City on May 10th and 11th. The world of finance continues to change at a rapid pace, but we will be separating the wheat from the chaff, covering only the most important topics for you over two action-packed days. More than 10,000 one-on-one meetings will take place, and the biggest names in fintech will be on our keynote stage. You know you need to be there, so go ahead and register at fintechnexus.com and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Kurt Lin. He is the CEO and co-founder of Pinwheel. Now, Pinwheel is a super interesting company. They're focused on income data, and they've really created this infrastructure around income data. And it says you know, here on their website, income data engineered for fintech innovation. We get into this innovation in some depth. There's really three different use cases or products that they offer. One is the Pinwheel Verify, which is all around helping lenders underwrite more accurately and really also helping prevent fraud. Lenders want an accurate tally of what the income of each borrower truly is, and Pinwheel helps with that. They also have Earning Stream, which is all about earned wage access, and that's a super interesting product and one that I'm a big fan of. And they also have deposit switching. They take the pain out of switching uh, direct deposits. So it's all around income data, connecting payroll and disparate types of data, which we get into in some depth on the show as well. They talk about also the survey they did that had a lot of uh, interesting findings. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kurt. Happy to be here, Peter. Okay, so let's kick it off by giving the listeners a little bit of background. Why don't you tell tell us some of the highlights of your career before you started Pinwheel? I'm sure I don't have as storied of a background as most of your esteemed guests, so this will be pretty brief. Well, you're still young, so you can't expect we don't expect it to be a long, <laughs> a long resume. <laughs> I appreciate that. I actually have always kind of been a serial entrepreneur. As I like to tell my team, I am constitutionally unemployable, <laughs> so. He started my first company when I was uh, actually at UCLA. It was a piece of hardware that would attach to your bike to prevent bike theft. The highlight of that was that I got to drop my own company. The low line was that I had no idea what I was doing. And so uh, it did not go very far, but it made me realize that I, I wanted to continue starting companies. So I joined a friend at a product design agency and then went to join a startup called Luck, which was on-demand parking. And that's where I met my current co-founder, Curtis. And so uh, after we sold that business to Volvo back in fall of 17, we decided to co-found Pinwheel together. And that's how I found myself here today. Okay. So let's dig into that. What was the problem that you saw or the genesis for the founding Pinwheel? It's a great question. As I think many of your uh, audience members know, starting a startup is never a linear journey, although you think it is at the beginning. As we like to say, wandered the desert for a bit. We actually started by trying to build a automated HSA. So basically, health savings accounts are just really tax advantaged accounts, but the utilization of them is super low because people have to pre-fund them to use them. And we realized that most people didn't have the cash flow to actually pre-fund. So we decided to build an automated HSA that would 
look at your spending and then detect a qualified medical expense, go in your payroll system and automatically make sure that you still got their tax savings added to your paycheck every month. And so we thought it was pretty cool, raised the seed round, brought it to market. And then interestingly, we were spending all of our engineering hours not actually building the product, which is always not a good sign. We were building integrations because we had customers coming in and saying, this is really cool, I want to use it, but I have ADP or I have Workday or I have what other payroll platform can you guys support us? And we'd be like, no, all we have is an incredibly janky beta with you know Gusto or JustWorks or what have you. And so we were looking around trying to figure out, hey, is there some sort of API up there that allows us to connect into these payroll systems? In order to build the fintech app they want to build. And we didn't see anything. So we built that platform internally just to power our own app. Mm. And then quickly realized that there were a lot more other, not just fintech apps, but frankly, innovators in the financial services space that needed access to the really valuable data and direct deposits in these payroll systems. And that's when we pivoted away from the HSA app. We sunsetted that and then really focused on the infrastructure layer to enable innovators like ourselves to be able to build the future of the financial system. Interesting, interesting. So then what is your product suite today? What are you offering? So at the most basic level, what we do is we provide connectivity via an API to the vast world of both payroll and more broadly income sources. So you have like the major payroll providers like an ADP or a Workday. You have all of the gig platforms like an Uber or Lyft or DoorDash. You have all the federal portals for federal employees, whether it's a postal worker or whether it's someone who works in the military, as well as all of the kind of proprietary systems that the Fortune 1000 and beyond use. And so we have about 85% coverage of all workers in the country, and we're quickly expanding that to hopefully 100%. And from that point of connectivity, what we can do is a number of things, but kind of at a high level, we can both read and we can write data. And so on the right side, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we can update things like someone's direct deposit settings. So obviously, as I'm sure uh, your audience knows, whether it's a neobank or whether it's a, a traditional FI, getting a, that direct deposit is super important, right? But it's really high friction to actually switch a direct deposit. So we take all that friction out, condense it down to just a one or two clicks, and then we embed it at the point of highest intent. So uh, in an account opening experience, for example, and making it really easy to say, yes, I want to move my paycheck over. That's one core product. And then on the reading of data, we have products around income and employment verification, which obviously is critical for any sort of uh, lending process. And then we also have additional products like our earning stream product, which takes uh, not only all of your historical pay, but also takes in time and attendance and kind of like what your future inputs are to be able to say, I know when Kurt has clocked in and clocked out of his shift today, I know that he's going to get paid you know, in two weeks. And so I can give that data to a fintech partner or a traditional bank and say, you can offer earn wage access, basically de-risk because you have that real-time information. And that's, that's what the earning stream product enables. Right, right. Now that's three great use cases. I'd love to sort of dig in a little bit and talk about the the payroll data, all of the income data for that matter. But this seems like a pretty manual process, right? Because you've got to go out there. I mean, ADP is totally different connectivity than you know than Trinet or Workday or any of them. And then you've got all of the all of the 1099 workers. And so, is this just a case of starting these one at a time and just going through and and writing the code to connect, or how does it actually work? What we 
do is kind of, I would say it happens in different phases. The first phase is just what we call ingestion, but can we even get the data from where it sits in these different systems into our system, right? Can we even build those pipes? And the short answer there is yes, it just, it just takes time. Ideally, we're always establishing partnerships with folks and that's kind of the, the goal. And then the next phase after that is then what we would call normalization. But that's actually taking what you mentioned, which is all sorts of different types of data that is highly unstructured and bringing structure and order to the chaos, right? Like one of the classic problems that we encounter, or rather our customers encounter that we help them solve is when you look at income data, historically, the unit of work has always been time-based, right? It's an hour. Even if you're a salaried worker on your paycheck, it actually turns your salary into an effective hourly rate. And that's how you get paid. With the advent of gig work, like with Uber and Lyft, that unit of work is actually not time-based. It's actually transaction-based, right? Mm -hmm. You just did an Uber drive or you just you know completed a, a DoorDash. How do you make sense of that data so that when you give it to a, a lender, a fintech, a FI, they can actually use it effectively, right? Whether it's for underwriting or even just for verification, like help us make sense of this data. And that's where I think the Pingo really shines. Because building those pipes, if you bring on with each other, there's not a long-term moat there, right? Anyone can build those pipes and, and get, the, get the data in. But to actually make sense of it and organize it in a way that is actually helpful to our customers is actually incredibly difficult. And that's the really exciting thing that we're working on. That's you know how we are able to build things like the earning stream, et cetera, to actually make sense of that income data for our customers. I just want to be clear here. So let's just take an example of, of a random person. They've, they've got a nine to five job. They have a payroll. That's pretty basic. But then on weekends, they drive for Uber. And then they might also have, you know, like a little Etsy store or something. Or they, they might have two kind of really sporadic income sources as well as their day job. Do you connect all those three things together? So the bank account can sort of see all the deposits coming in. But how are you kind of bringing it all together outside of the bank account? So the interesting thing is not all of that information is actually coming up in the bank account. I think that's one of the big things that our customers come to us and say, hey, we have visibility into their bank account and we're seeing inflows around one direct deposit, but we have a hunch that there's probably more that they get that isn't coming in here, right? And you say, great, well, implement pinwheel and then we can have them connect all of their income sources. So for your point, you know, they may have a W-2 from a, a standard nine to five day job, and they also drive Uber at night. And so they can connect their Uber account. If they also have an Etsy salary account, they can connect that Etsy account as well. And now we've built a comprehensive profile of their income and actually also done the work to organize that data in a way that says, Hey, you know, so and so lender or so and so bank, here is, you know, Kurt's true income. In aggregate, here is all the different sources of where it comes from. Here is what you can expect as far as what their future pay is going to look like, etc. And by the way, because of your view of what bank account, you're only actually seeing the nine to five income. You're not actually seeing the Uber income. You're not actually seeing the Etsy income because it's getting sent to a different place. Um, oftentimes to like a, a native card that is being offered. Like Uber has their own card. Uh, Etsy has their own you know, financial services embedded as well. So then... How are you finding the, the Etsy and the Uber if they're getting their pay to their debit card? You said something like they can sort of credential their Etsy store or whatever. Maybe take us through that. A lender is doing an application. There's a borrower who's putting down their, their income. Like, is this the borrower doing it during an application process? 
How does it work? That's exactly right. It's consumer permission, right? right? So if a consumer is going to, let's say, let's take a big bank like Wells Fargo, right? And they're applying for a mortgage and they're trying to show all of their income sources. At a certain point when they're in the application flow, it'll say, hey, Wells Fargo partners with Pinwheel to you know understand uh, your income. Please connect all the accounts where you know, which you're actually generating money, right? And so they'll connect their ADP account for their nine to five job. They'll then connect their Uber account potentially or their Etsy account and what have you. And that's done largely through a, a login credential. Although we are increasingly forging partnerships where it makes the friction a lot less for the consumer, where they can just say, "Here's you know my uh, my information. Here's like my last part of my social. We can match it against a database and then send a two-factor off code and provide a much more seamless experience for that consumer. And wow. that's something that we're excited to continue to introduce, right? Because everyone knows the more friction you have in that funnel, the the more painful it is for right. the consumer. And frankly, the more drop-off you have for the lender, right? And so yeah. the goal is to always make that experience easier and easier. That makes sense. And I can see how they may be motivated, but at the end of the day, they think, oh, God, I only make like $100 a month from my Etsy. I'm not going to bother. Then they just bail out of the whole application. So I want to talk about the earn wage access, the earning stream product, because it's something that I'm a big fan of. I think uh, none of us should, when I mean, we all do, but we all have these loans that we give to our employers because they only pay us you know, twice a month or, or even if it's once a week, it's still a good chunk of time where you are lending money to your employer at 0%, I might add. Tell us, does that work the same way or is it just you're targeting one particular income source or how does it work? If you will humor me, I'll give a quick history on earn wage access sure. uh, and then I'll go into what we do that's pretty different. So historically, the way that earn wage access has always worked, first of all, I agree with you, it's pretty wild that we're lending money to our employers and there's just this float there for whether it's every month or every two weeks. And I think everyone, it's one of the rare issues where there's bipartisan support. Where there's not really any argument that, hey, like, if you make money today, you should be able to get your money today, right? right. Like, it's, it's an artifact of an older system where they needed to process, which doesn't really actually need to happen in today's day and age. And I think a lot of people are, uh, rightfully so, working on how to solve that, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about what has happened historically, the first phase of this were what I would call like the first generation of earn wage access providers who are basically going to the employer and saying, hey, Walmart or whoever, Amazon, you have all this data. Someone needs to work with the data that you have to be able to see who has earned what on what you know timeline and what context. And then it's actually pretty easy to then forward them their money for that day, right? The problem is then you have to go employer by employer and sell them on what this increases employee retention and engagement. And this is like really good for your people. And you should actually pay for this service because it's going to help you in the long run, blah, blah, blah. That's just a really, really hard sale, right? Like it's just, you're selling to an HR team that's always, you know, uh, an uphill battle uh, because they're largely seen as like a, as a cop, right? The next iteration of it were folks who were going, you know, D to C, right? Like an example of this would be like an earning who given different inputs. Like, hey, I can map your geolocation and figure out that you've been at the same location, like a, at the same Starbucks for eight hours. So I can surmise that you've worked your shift and then give you the money. But there's still a lot of, as you might imagine, gaps in, in, in actually understanding mm-hmm. from source data that's actually happening. Right. But the benefit of DTC is you don't have to go to the employer anymore. You can actually do it directly to the consumer who is the one that really understands the value of and really needs it. Right. What Pinwheel does that has never been done before is that, well, 
if we just abstract away all the complexity and connect directly into the time and attendance systems and the payroll systems and the HRIS systems that have all this information, then we can enable anyone who's providing a financial service to actually offer their own taste and flavor of earned wage access. So what we do is we say, okay, let's connect it into this time and attendance and payroll system. So we know, number one, that Peter has you know clocked in and clocked out today of a shift at Chipotle. Number two, we know because we have real-time data that as of this very second, if he is requesting a pay advance, he is still employed. So the risk of fraud goes down dramatically, right? Well, they're, not, they're not trying to like game the system here. And then thirdly, and arguably most importantly, we have access to the direct deposit rails as well. So when they do get paid in two weeks or a month, we can ensure that the person who is advancing the pay, or rather the company that's advancing the pay, can claw back those funds and be first money out. And if you put those three things together, you have earned wage access as a service, right? Mm. And so that's what we're helping enable for some of the largest players in fintech and hopefully soon some of the folks, the biggest names in, in traditional FI as well. Right, right. It's a true example of embedded finance right there where you can just embed this earned wage piece into a system. So I just want to be clear though, I get the premise, but clawing the money back, how is that done where you know, you've got the person who's applied for this and then two weeks later their pay comes into their bank account like you said you got like read write access do you have the power to write to their payroll system to divert that money back to the lender before it hits their bank account is that how it works that's exactly right we're adding in effectively a direct deposit allocation for the amount that the consumer has expressly permitted and okayed as saying yes i want to take 50 dollars out of my next four paychecks to pay uh, off this advance that I received from, you know, uh, so-and-so neobank, for example. And so it's really important to note that this is only ever being done as a voluntary thing from the consumer's end. It's right. not like some sort of, you know, garnishment that I think someone gets confused as to like what actually happens. So the consumer has the prerogative to say, I don't want to do this anymore and like, and peel it off. But that's, it's being done through the direct deposit allocations in the payroll system. Okay. Obviously, a lot of people have two, you know, two or more bank accounts where the the pay is going on a regular basis, and you've been able to get through your technology right access to say, okay, this is a a little temporary direct deposit switch of a tiny amount going back to a different bank account, the lender's bank account, right? Exactly right. Okay, I'm clear now. That's good. So that leads into the direct deposit switching piece, which I want to dig into here, and that. You've explained it a little bit there, but maybe you can talk about the use case of, I'm in fintech and I've got multiple accounts with multiple fintechs and I've also still got my traditional bank account that I've had for 30 years. And you know I keep that and I'm not your typical consumer, obviously, but explain sort of what are the popular use cases? Is it really just account opening where this is um, being done or tell us a little bit more about that product? So I think the... It's always good to start with what is the problem that we're solving, right? And I think there's always been this holy grail that's been discussed amongst folks in financial services around account portability, right? How easy is it actually for a consumer to switch from one bank to another bank? And there's kind of two pieces to it. One is, well, I need my data to be portable, right? And that's kind of been the the topic du jour in open banking. But the other piece that doesn't get discussed anywhere near as much around portability, which, by the way, was one of the three pieces that Biden in his recent executive order yeah. highlighted as like the key piece of you know what the, the TPP should be doing, and it's also in line with Director Chopra's remarks as well. 
the other key piece about portability is, well, I got to move my paycheck over. Otherwise, even if I have all my data switched, I'm still getting all of my money into this old account of mine, right? That I don't actually want that money to be going to. And so when we think about how that actually works, pitching a direct deposit is really hard. You're either submitting a paper form to your HR team, which more often than not magically vanishes into the ether and somehow never gets processed, right? Or you're trying to self-serve on some sort of, you know, ADP portal, which was never designed actually for the end user. It was really designed as just a mechanism to make sure that employers had something they could point to to give their people something to actually, you know, select their benefits and, right. you know, manage their pay. And so what happens is people get to this point and there's so much friction that they just don't end up doing anything. And so what we're really out to solve is the friction problem, right? Take all of that complexity out and via our API access, allow the consumer to just with a couple of clicks say, yes, I want to connect my ADP account. And yes, I want to move either all or some of my paycheck over. And you can embed that. I mean, I think the most relevant and where we see the most traction is an account opening, but it really actually can be used for a bunch of other use cases as well, right? We just touched upon using it as a way to repay a, a an earned wage advance, or it can also be used in a greater lending context too. Right. right. Like if you, we, we work with a number of short term installment lenders, um, where they offer consumers the ability to say, Hey, if you connect your paycheck with us and allow us to collect payment directly out of your direct deposit, uh, we can offer you a lower interest rate because we've reduced the risk in this equation. We've proven that on average, there's a three X increase in repayment rates when you have a direct deposit connected especially for people who are thin file or a FICO score that's you know below 600. And because of that, it's a win-win where the consumer can actually access a much lower interest rate, even though they don't have the FICO that would allow that lender to feel comfortable giving them that rate. At the same time, that lender feels more comfortable extending them a lower rate because you now have a direct deposit collection mechanism in place to reduce risk. Right. And so it's a really exciting thing to be able to offer for any of the lending customers. Now, it's a great thing for the subprime consumer. I know a couple of different lenders that are using this as a as a way to reduce the interest rate. And and we're talking like materially reduction, like reducing it from, you know, might be 36% down to 12 in some cases. Or I, the real subprime guys, I know, go from triple digits down to like 30%. You know, these are really big benefits to the consumer. So anyway, one thing that you recently did that I... I want to um, get your perspective on this. Is the survey that you just did? I saw the press release and some of the articles that were out last month about this. Tell us about the survey and, like, basically who you surveyed, what you asked them, and that some of the key findings. One thing that we had talked a lot about internally was that we exist because we believe that unlocking access to all this different payroll and income data and putting it into the hands of consumers would lead to materially better financial outcomes for these folks, especially those that we consider underserved, right? So either people who tend to be lower income or those folks who tend to be more thin file, who just don't have you know, a, a large credit history, right? The thesis was giving them this data allows them to access better products. Now, while we all believe that to be true, we never found good sources of information to be able to point to and say, hey, the people who were looking to help really actually see this as a problem. And they, the ones who live it every day are the ones who need it the most, right? It's mm-hmm. actually pretty hard to find good data on that. And so the why of all of this was we were like, well, let's, you know, as in all great product development processes, let's go to the people we're actually trying to help and actually get their feedback firsthand, right? Tell us 
what are the problems that you face? Tell us like what is wrong with the system as it stands today? What do you want to see changed? And that will help us then as we work with our customers and our partners, build the solutions that are actually going to lead to the outcomes that will actually meaningfully help those who need it most. Right. So that was kind of the the why of it all. Mm-hmm. And I think we have found a lot of really interesting things. Um, one of the things that I think we're really excited about, especially as it relates to credit scores, is that for the majority of people in the country, they actually either have no score or a bad score because, as you know, it takes time to build a good score, right? And because of that, they're inherently barred from accessing what would be an affordable and you know non-usurious credit product. One thing we saw is that 60% of working people in the country feel that their credit score doesn't accurately reflect how financially responsible they are, which the goal is, well, if we can show that someone's income, like the the story that I like to tell is we see all the time, these teachers and nurses who've had the same job for four or five, six years, have incredible income stability, right? The income volatility is incredibly low and actually perform much closer to a 700 or 750 with their FICO sitting at 550, right? Because they just, they haven't had the experience of being able to get a credit score or sorry, a credit product and then proving that they can actually perform. And so by being able to unlock access to the data that we have, we are working on showing lenders, hey, you should actually take a second look at this teacher or this nurse or, or what have you. Um, and they are actually something that you should feel comfortable lending to. Right. That's great. So, you know, the title of this report was Propelling Consumer Finance into the Future with Income Data. So with that, I'd love you to paint a picture of the future. What does the future hold when all this data is connected? I think the biggest thing will be that all consumers, not just the ones who are thin file or don't have a credit score, will see that the data that is unlocked is allowing financial service providers, aka our customers and our partners, to provide them with exponentially better experiences and products, right? So I'll give you a couple examples. If there is someone who is trying to get a uh, auto loan and they're being rejected because they don't have enough information in their credit or their FICO score isn't high enough or what have you, they're now actually being approved, right? That's a concrete outcome that uh, we're excited to enable. A more robust one would be, uh, like we discussed on the earn wage access side, someone who gets paid every two weeks but runs out of money in between and can't make rent so they have to go to a payday lender. Right, being able to actually get paid every day, whether it's through a financial service provider or a neo bank or what have you, now they don't have to go to a payday lender that is pushing them further into a deeper cycle of debt. Right, a more future forward one is okay. Well, with all the unlocking of this data, even for folks who may not be you know, lower income or thin file, imagine a world where. All of your taxes, because we have real-time insight into how much you're making, we can basically build a W-2 real-time. And we can help you say, hey, you know, you have, you know, those W-4 allocations where it's like sometimes you end the year mm-hmm. and you have a massive tax bill, or you end the year and you have a massive surplus of data uh, of money that you put away that you didn't actually need to, and you probably could have benefited from having that money throughout the year. We can actually say, well, hey, you're like putting away way too much money. You should actually have the allocation be one or two instead of whatever you have listed, or, hey, you're actually not withholding enough 
you're actually going to end the year with a massive tax bill. You should actually start to increase the amount of withholding so you don't end up with this you know, massive issue down the line. Unlocking that data in real time allows the entire financial system to build better products and operate more efficiently. Very true. And so well, the last question then, what do you see as Pinwheel's vision for enabling that future? So I think our goal is to be able to say, no matter where you work or how you make money, honestly, it would be great if consumers didn't even know that Pinwheel existed, right? Like it, we have done such a good job of building all of the infrastructure with the lenders, the banks, the fintechs, the ones who are providing financial services to make the open flow of income and payroll data so efficient that it's happening with like with very little friction in the entire uh, ecosystem. And anytime that you sign up for a product or you sign up for a loan or whatever, you are always getting the best rate or you're always getting the best product because we've done such a good job of making sure that when you need it most, that data is being shared, obviously with your explicit consent to help you, you know, secure the the best outcomes for yourself as a consumer. And one thing I should add to this that I think is oftentimes glossed over, there's this idea of a CRI, which is a consumer reporting agency, which uh, basically says, in short, that whoever is providing this data is responsible for the outcomes, especially if they're adverse outcomes, right? So if you are not a CRA and the data you furnish is inaccurate or in some way leads to a, a consumer being rejected for a loan, you're not liable. We made the choice very, very early on to be a CRA because we felt it was obvious that we should be responsible for this. And what this also allows our partners to do is actually use that data for underwriting. Right. Everyone else who's not a CRA, that data can't actually be used to do what the most important thing, which is reprice risk and actually help consumers access better financial products. And so it just seemed ridiculous to us that there's all these data providers out there that aren't holding themselves to this standard and being CRA. And so I'm excited to be leading the pack there and saying we're planting our flags here, knowing that this is we're on the right side of history here. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, that's a very important piece. So anyway, we'll have to leave it there. Kurt, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. This was the blast. I want to go back and just touch on the earned wage access product because this is something that I feel very strongly about. I think it is silly, as I said, that you have to wait all this time while your employer takes this you know, loan from you before your pay is able to be accessed. It's pretty obvious to me in the near future, everyone will be paid whenever they want. And this sort of earnings stream product is like the precursor to this. Because right now, it's not like you can go to your employer and say, I want to be paid every day. But this earnings stream, as this sort of becomes more commonplace and people say, well, I need, I need another $200 out of my next paycheck. Eventually, you will just get paid however much you want, whenever you want, obviously, within the fixed boundary of your, of your pay package. But if you want to get paid every day, that'll be fine. If you want to get paid once a week, that'll be fine as well. It's a really interesting fintech development that is going to, I think, become commonplace very soon. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. 